Welcome to the Jay and Pav Podcast Experience. Listening to the Che and Pav Show, teachers talking teaching, where two middle school teachers sharing our reflections, insights about the topics that matter the most in the classroom. So hey, Pav, join us in the hallway or even the parking lot, or better yet, how about the staff room? Welcome to episode 105 of the Chain Pav Show. Thank you for joining us as we sit around the table to talk teaching. In this episode, we discuss how we can set up a culture of reading in the classroom space. We question how we can go beyond traditional language arts programs to establish meaningful connections to reading in all areas of the curriculum. But before we get into that undoubtedly great conversation, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Pav Wander and I'm half of this dynamic duo. I'm sitting next to my co-host, who happens to be the other half, and he always introduces himself. To be Che or not to be Che in this episode. That indeed is the question. Oh, oh, you got philosophical. Just by accident, eh? Just by accident. I mean, take that back. Just rewind. (laughs) Play. Beep. To be. (laughs) Or not to be. And we are gathered around the kitchen table studios. Kitchen table studios. I love it. I love it. Not Chain Path Studios. It's Kitchen Table. No, no. Chain Path Studios sounds better. Yes. But if people took a look, oh, that's just your kitchen. (laughs) I thought you guys had a studio. Synonymous. But of course, Pat, this ties right into our MassQ presentation that we did this week. And we were talking about podcasting. We were talking about building our student podcast. And for us, it was fun. Uh, Because it was a fresh new presentation. And we know we have four or five that we've sort of curated and designed over the last year. But this was the first time where we did a sort of how-to student podcast. And one of the components we talked about is the better, more sophisticated equipment you have, the more freedom you have in your space. And I think most people wouldn't say, oh, their sound not so good. But the the equipment allows us to record uh, in a kitchen. Although we know that you could probably enhance it just a little bit more if we did all of the fancy things. But when we didn't have the fancy gear, space was crucial. How you positioned yourself with the mic was crucial. Background noise was crucial. So um, as we joke around about the kitchen, you know, being able to record in our kitchen table studio is a a manifestation of, you know, building our craft, building our expertise, uh, getting some great support and knowing what pieces we could buy and purchase that would make this actually more accessible for us to to do this anywhere. Yeah. And and I think that as we have uh, sort of built on the podcast and, uh, and we listen to our content back and we listen for, um, I don't want to call them flaws, but just little things that we could potentially improve on when it comes to the quality of the sound. I know recently I have been, because I do so much more editing than I used, than we used to do for our episodes previously I'm like listening to little things and I'm just like Jay do you hear that Jay do you hear that I kind of sound like I have 
uh, a little issue with my S's you, or you've changed. You have changed or, or I'll hear a little bit of that reverb, you know, and <laughs> get really paranoid with it. But yes, you're absolutely right. As we've sort of, we've, we've gathered the, the right equipment, the things that we need to be able to um, record in a very comfortable and cozy space such as this one. That's right. So if you don't hear me respond to Pav right away, it's not because I don't know what to say. It's because I've drifted asleep on the sofa. Yeah. Or, or he's rummaging through the fridge. <laughs> what are we going to have to eat after? I'm yes. starved. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yes, um, podcasting is not the topic of our conversation no, today. No, but in the notes, it says uh, banter. <laughs> it still says banter. So I'm trying to bring up points of conversation. <laughs> Yes, and very naturally, Che, you've done it so well. Because <laughs> I've decided to be Che in this episode. Yes. So no transition and random uh, topic drops all the time. Yeah, so nothing different. But Pav, you know, before we get into the content, it has been a busy week uh, for us. And who who has it not been busy for mm -hmm. since 2007? Um, we also have the Ontario Library Council presentation yes. coming this week. So That's right. So in Tomorrow. between these presentations, we're... we're you know, this is our relaxed time before we dive into the yeah. this rich content that we want to go through. This is like the the one day this week that we've been like, oh, we can actually take a breath and not focus too much. But we have an episode, so it is a, it is a different kind of focus. It is a focus that we are very um, accustomed to uh, and familiar with, and so it, it doesn't feel like uh, like new work. So, but it's still work because it's still we still spent about an hour preparing for this uh, for this episode, and that's on top of all the work that we have done on this topic uh, already. Because uh, go ahead, yes, you, you want to. Interject. Oh, what you said? We only work for an hour. Do you know how many years of foundational knowledge is behind <laughs> trying to get into this topic? It's not just years; it's it's over the yes, definitely years, but throughout our entire careers. Hey, as I just, well, I just googled it ten minutes ago, eh, so I'm ready to talk it. on it. Eh? Like I get tons, I get tons to see. This last hour has just been t filtering down uh, the years of knowledge that we have gained on this topic, and and saying, okay, so what direction do we want to take? What points do we want to cover? What areas do we want to dispute? Uh, through this conversation so that that is essentially uh, the prep work that has happened but this is this is a different comfort zone when it comes to preparing for episodes uh for us to talk about on this on this show absolutely show. so if you're not completely bored uh come back <laughs> how could we be bored when che is uh here quoting all kinds of I've important stuff i've only quoted myself so <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly important. But now people are quoting you too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quoting Shay because he hasn't been quoted. Thanks, Holly. We appreciate that. Come right back and we'll set us up with our anecdote. This is Brian Carpenter from the Fresher 5 podcast. You're listening to the Chain Pav Show. All right, thank you, Brian. Um, and of course, Brian, who noticed these these little bumpers we've had recently, and we've had Tim and Tom and Stephen uh, and Beth. If you want to throw us a bumper, you know, pumping yourself up, you don't even have. I think we've only connected with podcasters thus far. You don't have to be a podcaster if you're a writer, blogger, teacher, educator, and you just want to say you're listening to, or I'm so and so, and you're listening to. Let's go. Send us an email, and let's we'll get it in there. Would love it. Yeah. But Pat, let's talk about anecdotes. Let's get this thing started. Um, there's many different anecdotes mm -hmm. to, to this topic. Yeah. And I think this is why I sort of, I gave you a quick shot when you said, we've only been studying for the last 15 minutes. Like, no, we haven't. <laughs> um, there's at least two, there's at least three spaces in the last few weeks that sort of set us up to put in our little notes that we wanted to talk about uh, reading. And, and one for me was we were having a conversation at school. And of course, there's always PD being available and there's always mass emails. You want to do this course, want to do that course, you want to do here, you want to do this, you want to do that. And I got an email once about this course and then a response email about this course and another email about this course. So finally, I took a closer look. Mm. And it was, you know, do you want to take your adolescent reading? Uh, one, two, three, or one, two specialist. And I said, wait a second, wait a second. 
I already got my reading specialist. You know, unbeknownst to most people that think I'm just a gym guy, uh, I actually, this is actually my field of expertise, or technically, uh, adolescent reading. I said, oh, wait a second. Sometimes I forget, you know, what is it, what's my backing? And I, it reminded me of a few things, Pav, is that sometimes we forget our own training, we forget our own experience, and it's not a lack of confidence. It's just we, we, we drift away sometimes from sort of those roots. And we, I don't even say we forget. It's not that we're forgetting to do things, but sometimes you, you don't honor who you are as much as, because you, you just sort of take it for granted sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, wait a second. I, I am a reading specialist. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit more about this. So, yes, thank you for directing me to this course to take. When I sent back, I said, I would love to share some of my insights from actually taking this course. And it also reminds me of the infrastructure of a school, how little we know about what everyone else is engaging in beyond their teaching practice or whatever role they're facilitating in that school, that in my school, no one know, knew I had this. And I guess I'd forgotten or hadn't talked about it. And I said, wait a second, thank you for, for directing this content to me, but let me not pushback, let me give back that I've actually fulfilled this requirement. Maybe I could give some more, show some more, give you some insights on what other people might expect from an adolescent reading specialist. Mm-hmm. That's a great story. And that's a great uh, anecdote to get us started because we do often forget where uh, some of our specialties lie and some of our expertise lie. Um, maybe because we're not using it on a daily basis. We're not, I'm sure that we are applying those those skills and that knowledge to to many of the areas that we, uh, that we teach in. Um, but it may not be top of mind. It may not be right there for us to access and to bring up, um, especially with colleagues who uh, are likely not aware. I mean, I haven't, I haven't uh, gone and checked in on on all of my colleagues to see, you know, what areas are they experts in, um, and that's not even something that really needs to be brought up. But it's it's really valuable if we can be able to tap into that. Um, and I was thinking as you were you were talking about the the specialist, I, I was actually wondering how much content like uh, like the science of reading or reading. Um, uh, strategies or this reading specialist, adolescent reading strategies has evolved uh, over the last couple of years. And it, it would be very interesting to know that when I did my specialist, my specialist is actually is in uh, physical education. I would actually love to know um, how how areas like this change and evolve um, in in two years, three years, ten years, fifteen years uh, since it was uh, acquired, and and so it would be interesting to just to just hear from somebody who has completed it recently. You know, what were some of the areas that you studied? Uh, what were some of the practical ways that you uh, that you learned about this topic? Um, and, and what are some of the things that maybe are different from what I learned? Um, that would be a great topic of conversation as well to have with colleagues who are taking the more, um, the more current class or the more recent class uh, for reading specialists. I don't know. This is interesting. I could answer a bunch of those questions already, but I think it would take us sort of not off topic, but maybe not to where we want to start our topic. Right, yes. And, and Pav, we play off on this anecdote when we sort of connected with this idea um, of reading and reading specialists and building a reading culture or the science of reading. It sort of manifests a lot in a, even our last episode. We were talking about oral content. And of course, we've talked about audio content and the notion mm-hmm. that reading is also, well, you could debate it. But is, you know, listening to an audiobook is that reading? Um, are you getting the same knowledge? Are you able to display the same level of learning? And so we've already always articulated that that, that is reading. Reading that audiobook is reading. And certainly I would probably argue 95% of what I read is is in audio format. I don't sit and read at all. Well, the, the, yeah, I actually had a very similar point to that. We oh, can talk about that oh, a little bit oh, further oh. Um, later. We got so many notes. As we dove back into the reading, we wanted to get in this idea of do we want to set up a reading program? Or do we want to set up a, a culture of reading? Mm-hmm. And it's a play on vernacular, but behind the vernacular is actually intentionality, action, and how we're setting up our, our program and our plan. And so we went diving into the sort of the, the edu space, and there's this firm base of the science of reading. And there seems to be a firm camp of it's not solely the science of reading. Uh, and how do you manifest? How do you navigate this space? Where do you build your own idea of how you want to build a reading program? Do we want to fixate solely on I'm building a reading program? Or do you want to build on I'm cementing a reading culture? 
Mm-hmm. And I think, Pat, especially positioned as middle school teachers, certainly the, the ascension of reading changes over time. Uh, not necessarily age uh, over time, but by the time you're in middle school, because we are middle school teachers, we are seeing different things in our readers than you would say, see in the kindergarten age, the grade one, the grade two, the grade three. And you may say the foundationing, the foundational principles of what you're trying to get out of reading might be different. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can discuss that further, but certainly our experience as a grade two trying to formulate a reading culture versus a reading program, they would be merely performative. What we can talk about is reading in that middle school space and what are we trying to build? And I think by reading some of this literature and seeing some of these debates, and I, Pat, you cut me off any time because there's so much content. Reading an article has brought up this whole idea of learning loss. And we've had this talk before. And there's been talk about now that so much learning has been going on at home, there's been like this re-emphasis of how do I support my children learning how to read? And there's this, been this notion that if scores are lowering, there's been loss of reading ascension. And I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just telling you what I'm finding from reading a few articles. And so there's been this new focus on how do we teach reading and how do we manifest reading at home to support students and support our children. And it sort of reinvigorated the science of reading versus sort of uh, the 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 vastness of building a reading culture, although that terminology wasn't used, sort of... Uh, um, balance literacy? That's the word. Okay. Because I don't use balance, so I couldn't pull it out. It's like yes. the flow of literacy is not the flow of literacy. Balance literacy. The balance yes. literacy approach. So it was interesting. And that sort of set us up for us formulating and, and looking at our experiences and looking at what we're doing and looking at what's working to sort of finalize where do we fit in there? Do we need to fit yeah. in there? And what do we want to stand for? Um, you brought up so much. I, I As you were speaking, I went through my notes and I was highlighting all kinds of stuff. And I... And I I almost don't know where to start, but um, you highlighted the science of reading and balanced literacy. And we, as we were reading, and you, you also brought up the point of, you know, we can't really speak to the primary experience or the kindergarten experience when it comes to uh, building a reading culture, because that's not where we are. We are middle school teachers, and we've sort of um, been there most of, if not all of our careers. And so that is what we have worked with. And so, um, when it comes to that middle school experience, it, that it almost seems very, um, intuitive that we are working more towards a balanced literacy approach rather than focusing on phonemic awareness and, uh, the, the science of decoding and working. Although those are things that still exist in middle school years. And of course we have to address them. Um, but as I was sort of listening to you speaking about some of these things and some of that, the pushback that comes from, uh, you know, we can't be solely focused on uh, on uh, the science of reading because it doesn't apply to uh, we can't we can't talk about, you know, critical thinking skills, problem solving skills. The love of reading can't be built through decoding. Um, but it has me thinking about when we talk about uh, basic math skills and and sort of having some in the bank. Uh, in our sort of read-only memory so that we can free up our short-term memory or, or the random access memory that I like to, to talk about too, to be able to focus on some of those other skills that come with reading. Um, that is something that I was thinking of as well, is that we, we sort of have to have that science of reading piece in place if we want to be able to be completely successful with the balanced literacy approach. We have to be able to decode really well. Or, you know, if if there is a problem with de- decoding and dyslexia is something that I think is um, underrepresented in many middle school learners, uh, it hasn't been diagnosed, um, it hasn't been addressed, it hasn't been even, um, you know, a, uh, picked out in in many so many students um that 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 still needs to exist we still need to work on decoding if that is an issue but we we have to be able to have that under our belt if we want to have a really great reading culture in the classroom space so um there's there's a lot to this there really is it's a very big conversation it's a complicated conversation and there are many different roads that we could potentially go on 
myself, I've always been a reader uh, since I was very young. I, I really enjoyed reading fiction and I read a lot of stories and it came very easy to me. I don't remember, uh, you know, when I started reading, um, I have found little, little pieces of writing that my parents had saved and and I and I reflect on that and I see that you know in grade one I was obviously reading I enjoyed writing I I, I found a, a little book that I had uh, made in class in grade one and and it talked about me wanting to be a writer when I grew up um, and one area where I found that really helped me with that writing piece was my love of reading. And I don't know where it came from. I, I really do enjoy reading um, more so the fiction piece since when I was young. And then as I got older, I picked up the nonfiction reading a little bit more. Something that really came easy to me as I grew up was the the grammar, the spelling and the punctuation. I obviously didn't have any issues with that as I was growing up. It, it came very easily to me. And having that in my back pocket really helped with writing as I grew older. Uh, so I was able to use punctuation correctly because it had been modeled to me uh, very explicitly in the past. And I don't remember guided reading when I was young. I remember a lot of modeled reading, uh, full group instruction, a lot of independent reading tasks. Um, but I don't remember explicitly being taught a lot of uh, the, the reading strategies that we often teach today. And that's not to say that it wasn't taught. I just may not remember it. But those are some of the areas where I felt that really helped me to establish that love of reading. And then again, in the future, really allow it to help me become a writer. And so for me, I feel like that balanced approach really worked, but I don't think that it works for everyone. And so how does that relate back to establishing a culture of reading? Well, having that culture of reading really allows for students to be able to establish their, their own meaning behind the reading, finding things that they enjoy to read and finding the different ways that they can read in different areas. And so that becomes that auditory uh, aspect as well. And so that point that I wanted to make to you, Che, that when we were talking about the auditory experience of reading, um, I don't think that this, this episode is about the importance of reading or even the diversity of reading, because we know that that comes in so many different forms. It's more about how to create that culture of reading in our spaces so that we value reading as foundational for, for everything that we do in our classroom spaces. Remembering that reading comes in, in visual forms, in graphic forms, auditory forms. It's even felt. So we can and should be engaging all of our senses when we're reading. And this is how, the, how we're really going to be able to make it most meaningful for students um, and, and get the most out of our programs as well. You crushed a bunch of really important things on that. My notes are very messy, very <laughs> scribbly. Don't try to read them. You won't be able to. I'm peeking over, but No I can't, chance right. that you could decode nope. this code. Um, I, I, okay, I, I, I don't know where to begin. I, I'm going to talk about, you talk about love of reading. Mm -hmm. And in my notes, I talked about the emotionality behind reading. And in everything I found... Not that, not that I've looked through everything. Only, only learned this topic for an hour, eh? <laughs> 15 um, minutes. Is that the, the discussion of emotionality, the emotional journey of reading was very seldom spoken of, especially mm -hmm. in, in the science of reading and the, the fixation on phonics. And, and it just it had me thinking, because now I made the connection to social emotional learning, where too often that's like, oh, let's do this before, let's do this after, where social emotional learning is embedded in our curriculum. And sometimes people say we got to embed it, but how do you embed it? Well, I embed social emotional learning and reading in curating topics, finding books, finding stories, as you talked about, we don't need to discuss about the many different means, but how am I going to instill a love of reading that's going to provide students access to want to read? Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it's great, I guess. It's great if I gave you, if you give me all the skills to, to be a plumber. But if I don't want to be a plumber, I ain't going to do it. So right. th thanks for the skills. Um, and I know it's a little trivial example. Don't, don't associate. This is what happens when I try not to associate uh, sports with education. I reach for a plumbing example, <laughs> a which I have no idea. <laughs> I have no connection to plumbing. It um, was a good attempt, though. But yeah. no, but I do want to say that you're you're absolutely right about that. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it. And I can think of a million uh, things in my own life where, it, you know, the want is absolutely 
mandatory. And so how do we want to build that want of reading? Continue, Che. So if we had to, sorry, I was just fixing the faucet. Um, if, if, if we're trying to ascend to that culture of reading, then I think the emotionality becomes central to it. I'm trying to build a positive experience. I want a love of reading in my space because I know that love of reading will curate, you know, uh, the more you read, the better you're going to read, I think. Yes. Um, and so I, I, there was a couple of quotes I had found. And so on the side of the science of reading, it, it's said by uh, David Kilpatrick, we teach reading in a variety of different ways, but we only learn to read proficiently in one way. And I pause for a second because, you know, I go through the wheat and the chaff. Okay, I, I guess you've done some research into how we cognitively read in a proficient way. And then I'm going to put this into a sports analogy. Um, how much do I micromanage someone learning how to shoot a basketball or swing a bat so they do it in the most proficient way? Or do I let them shoot and swing the baseball bat and see if they can hit? I'm a really good hitter, but I'm not really proficient in my baseball stance. I take little things that allow me to, to hit the ball effectively that maybe aren't necessarily checklist the, the science of hitting. I, I don't worry about keeping my elbow up. And, and if you thought about it, well, if I keep my elbow up, what's the first thing you do when you hit the ball? Your elbow drops. Mm -hmm. So I think... How, if I'm trying to teach reading, how important is it to give students the most technically proficient way to read before if if they're able to read and they're enjoying books and they're engaging in reading is the way they're comprehending that reading have to be absolutely the most proficient way to do it like is is there room for you to enjoy the book and maybe you're not reading technically the most proficient way so i thought in that quote i said how important is it to be astutely proficient in how you read in order to be a great reader because i make that analogy of baseball i'm a pretty good hitter but i don't technically swing you know, in the science of hitting perfectly. Hmm. And, and nor do I even attest to. And why do I not? Because I'm hitting the ball well. So right. why do I change the way I swing to try to do it technically, scientifically correct when I'm already getting a great result? And maybe if I'm not getting a great result, because now I've, I've, I've articulated that I, because I was getting a great result, I didn't need to, to worry about the science as much. This becomes back to this emotional journey. What, what do we do with struggling readers? Do we go back to the science, the phonics, the, and I want to, I want to talk another thing about, you talked about that critical consciousness. This reminds me of, of this point of, uh, which I came back to another article when I were talking about these wars is the, the science of reading banks on the science, but this article from the Washington Post says the science is, it's almost hypocritical to say the science of reading because the science of reading will articulate that students will be able to sound out words more proficiently with phonics. But there is no direct link of data that this makes them a better reader through the, mm -hmm. the, the measurements of critical consciousness and problem solving and engaging in that text and displaying the learning. So yes, the, that phonics-based teaching helps them phonically pick up the words, but is there actually a clear path that being able to do that leads to all the other things we really want from reading. Like that love of learning is almost that, 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 that foundational curiosity to grow and better yourselves and, and find ways to explore information. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think what, what messes things up in a lot of, uh, in a lot of what you've talked about and a lot of the theory behind the science of reading is the fact that reading is not natural for humans. It is not something that we are born to do. We are born to learn and we use our senses to learn, mm. right? And, and reading is, is essentially just taking symbols and using them to create language, is to create a pattern, is to create uh, messages that we can use to help us with the learning, um, so if we cannot use our senses to connect everything together uh, to, to form that language, then then really they're, they're, the science behind it is going to be flawed. So are we, the science behind it has to be as in individualized as every other thing that we talk about when it comes to uh, education. So, you know, you use your hitting example and, and with hitting, you're using biomechanics, right? You're using all of, you're using a lot of physics to be able to, uh, to really get that ball, uh, to be hit, but because every person is built differently and has muscle mass in different places, your biomechanics are going to be completely different from another person's biomechanics, even if they physically look like you. And when it comes to reading, 
it's much the same thing. Everybody's senses work a little bit differently from one another because we are not the same people. And so the science behind our reading and how we read is going to be different for each individual person. Because just like those biomechanics, all of our senses work a little bit differently. Our brains are wired differently. And I don't know a lot about the science of reading. I don't know a lot about uh, the hemispheres. And and I know that decoding is uh, on one hemisphere and like the comprehension part and, and all of those strategies are sort of on the other side. So if those wires are not connecting, you know, the way that we need, if those neurons are not firing in exactly the same way as as, as other people in the classroom or, or even the person that's sitting next to you, then your experience is going to be a little bit different. And I think that that is a a science that is still evolving and we don't quite know everything about. And so it is tough to say that this is the approach that we use. And of course that decoding, uh, that we use in the earlier grades, and then we build up to that comprehension. That's a, it's diff, they're two different things. So when we get up to the grade seven and eight level, um, is it that's and this is why we use so much assistive assistive technology to help us with the reading because by the time we get to grade seven and eight, if there is an issue with the decoding, it is really going to hinder our progress with the comprehension and with building connections and being able to uh, even be a good writer or a writer that is able to um, really put down the thoughts that we have on paper. So we we tap into all of those other strategies that we have, those other tools and resources that we have to be able to differentiate the experience between students so that they can produce their learning in in different ways than other students. But I think that it, it all boils down to everybody is different. And so if we are trying to blanketly apply a particular science of reading to everyone, I think that's where it's going to fail because not everybody has the same experience when it comes to their own neural connections and pathways that that sort of create that uh that learning experience you crush that i don't know yeah okay got me thinking got me thinking so bad we need a break <laughs> and we'll come right back with some final thoughts sounds good and you're listening to the chain path show And this episode is brought to you by Champav and the Magnificent Microphone, our soon-to-be-released picture book. This episode is also brought to you by the Champav Show. Rate, <laughs> review, subscribe, tell all your friends, make a flag, and hang it outside your house. Oh. And three, by Chase Plumbing Services. If you have any leaky faucets, I've just learned on how to do this. I'll be over right away. This is Brian Carpenter from the Fresh Air at Five podcast. You're listening to the Chain Pav Show. Thank you again, Brian and Pav. We are now ready to, to wrap this up, but I think by wrapping it up, we're just setting ourselves up to further the conversation, further the dialogue, and further our own learning because we know we don't intend these episodes to be the definitive answers to the conversation, but rather two active practitioners sharing their conversations so that we can collectively grow. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to this, the culture of reading, this, uh, this very vast and broad topic that we've sort of embarked on today. And we've been thinking and talking and, and working our way around this topic in so many different areas of our educational lives, Che. Um, you know, how, how do we actually set up a, a wonderful and optimized and, and a program, a culture of reading in our classroom that actually work. We touched on a number of things. Uh, when you spoke about emotionality, that really struck a chord with me because if you don't really, if you don't want to read, you're not going to read. So how do we make kids want to read? We provide different, uh, we provide different genres of reading for them to engage in. Um, but even that doesn't always work because 
the thought of opening up a book or just sitting to to read something that you may not enjoy doing is is work regardless of the genre that you might be able to tap into you could have tons of of uh you know graphic novels in the in the classroom but if students just don't feel like picking it up then then you're not going to get readers um and so that really had me thinking about a lot of things and then when it comes to the culture of reading how do we make reading absolutely foundational in every area of the classroom and as a middle school teacher, when I first started with uh, middle school, uh, I used read-alouds very differently than how I do today. Read-alouds were like, you know, something I did to sort of capture attention or to just break up the monotony of the day, to do something that students in, in grade seven and eight just are not really used to. But now we use read-alouds in a much different way. We actually use them to break down the uh the the information that's in the in the text and to apply it to many different areas and and whether that's to use to introduce a topic or whether it's embedded within the topic whether we are studying that text for deeper meaning or connections or learning more about the author read alouds have become very foundational in my reading culture in my in the the culture of reading and it's not just during language arts on the schedule it is during music it is during uh, drama it is during physical education we are using read alouds we are using reading we are using books we are using texts of various forms in every area of the curriculum and I think that that's absolutely necessary to embed the learning embed the reading in in every area that we can think of because that makes it so foundational and when I say reading, I'm, I'm talking about audiobooks, I'm talking about infographics, I'm talking about all kinds of Instagram posts. You know, you can use uh, those 10 Instagram posts that you get allowed in, to make in a post to create a piece of text that tells a story, whether it's a fiction or nonfiction story. I mean, these are great ways to get students interested in reading, and it becomes very foundational in so many different areas. So you know, your, your talk about emotionality and the wanting to read and creating that want to read um, really is, is, is very important to setting up that culture. And, uh, and I think that there are some things that we can do to make kids want to read a little bit more and to involve it in, in their day-to-day -day programming and including it in all areas of school life. I think that that is, um, that is mandatory and that is really important to set up that culture. Pav, again, so many great things. I jotted down a handful of notes and then I'm deviating away from my notes that I wanted to come back from. Maybe I'll, I'll come back to them or maybe I'll, you know, just post a solo episode and <laughs> uh, do what Sting does. Yes. Um, but I was, I was thinking when you were talking there about um, multiple things, but I thought about, you know, what's been working in middle school and how have I evolved over time. And it's the creating great flow, building a, a reading culture, and building many different access points. You talked about the read aloud, and you talked about how you use the read aloud differently. And so, yeah, yes. And then as an extension, there is guided reading. It's not, don't, don't associate that if you're not fixated on the science of reading, that you are inherently not fixated on guided reading. Guided reading provides a space to, to connect learners, share text, uh, pinpoint uh, learning targets. Um, independent reading. I had free reading mm -hmm. um, that I wanted. I like to have reading immersed many different ways. And there, there becomes a flow because you, you want students to be able to display their learning from their reading. You want to be able to use the reading to uh, actively teach and, and mentor and display the cognitive process, how they connect to the text, how they predict the text, and how those things work with the text, so those pre, during, post. But you also don't want to have reading that's totally connected to a product. I can't, when we think about emotionalities and love of reading and appreciation reading, when we connect a product to every time we're going to read, you're going to alienate certain leaders. There mm -hmm. has to be reading time that you are comfortable and confident and be able to articulate, I'm reading just for reading. Mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily going to question. I'm not going to use it to teach anything. And I'm not going to make it a secondary uh, option. Oh, if you finish, finish everything, you can read. Uh, no, I don't know if I want, I can have that in my program as part of that reading culture, but I don't want to facilitate reading time by solely just saying, if you finish everything, now you can read. I, I actually do a lot, a quiet reading time or free read 
where there's no explicit, uh, you have to produce a product at any point to validate or justify me giving that time. Now, I'll connect later in the week with a reading log or reading response and in the class and we have collectively made 25 and growing different ways to respond to a reading, but it's not directly connected to any particular reading moment. It's the assumption that over the week we've engaged in enough text. Ideally, you've read at home. And again, we've talked about reading manifests in many different ways. And here's a chance for you to display some of that learning and something you want to share. And like I said, the 25 curated topics that we've co-constructed, some of them are very technical is that you might use in a guided reading and some of them are like make a canva psa announcement based on what you've read mm -hmm. and so um when i think of that reading culture I th you talked about read alouds the read alouds across curriculum i could think of using the water princess specifically in science to talk about water where five or six or seven or eight or nine ten years ago i probably wouldn't have I would have said to the information text mm -hmm. and so bringing stories into all your subject matter, and I won't say it normalizes, it honors stories. It sees storytelling as a way and an access point to all learning moments, whether it be math or science or physical education. And then just those expansion on that guided reading, the independent reading, the free reading, the readouts, these are things that I immerse in the class. And so when you talk about back to the science of reading, it's not because the foundational knowledge is important. And so it's not about not teaching coding or not being phonics. And if you're up in grade eight and, and you're still struggling through things, we're still going to provide spaces for this and guided learning. It's just how much more do we want to try to connect to? And I think right. the emotionality is key. There has to be a love of reading and you have to model that you have a love of reading. And that doesn't mean you sit and read. Sure, that's great. But you want to make sure your class honors and validates and provides endless access points to reading. It becomes a space where we know there is a love of books and books in quotation marks manifest in any in any form in that space. And so we lend ourselves to we want to build a reading culture before we want to ascend to we're building a reading program. I had a, a huge flash as you were talking um, of myself as a lover of reading. And I um, and I was thinking about um, as you were talking about, you know, allowing students uh, that time to free read, just read whatever is available to them, what they want to read. Um, and then it brought me back to, well, if a student doesn't have a book with them that they've either borrowed from the school library or they brought from home with them or um, they don't really want to read everything, anything that's that's provided to them in the classroom space. I have a classroom library, but that library, if I'm not refreshing it um, every every year or every couple of years or adding to it every couple of weeks or months, um, it becomes a little bit stale. Students go through it. They don't really find anything, you know, that they, that that uh, appeals to them. Then how do we create that sort of, okay, well, I kind of, I want to read this item that is available to me. Um, and I really, um, I thought about me staring at my own bookshelf. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I go and I look at it and I say, you know, is there anything here that kind of, it strikes my fancy, something that I want to read again or something that I never finished that uh, that I want to tap into or, you know, that that pile of books that you keep adding to that you never seem to get to. Um, I have that pile and, and I sometimes look at it and I say, you know, nothing is really nothing. I'm not gravitating to anything here. And then, you know, I, I kind of go on to my, uh, my phone and I start browsing through new titles that are available to me. And that made me think of visiting the public library. And, you know, pre-COVID, um, we used to visit the public library in our area quite often as a class. It was within walking distance and it was something that we were able to, to do every once in a while. We would go, we would make sure that everybody in the class has their, um, has signed up for public uh, library cards. And the public library is such a wonderful space to explore a variety of different, not just genres, but different ways of reading. You know, there, you can sign out audiobooks from the library now and you can uh, listen to them on your phone. I mean, during COVID, the, this was the, the way that I read books. I, I started reading books by listening to audiobooks and I shared with students that this is such a great way to read when you maybe don't want to read something with your eyes, you want to read something with your ears. And so, um, you know, why not explore that? And there's so much other stuff that happens in libraries. You could listen to read alouds at the library. You could listen to author talks. You could 
participate in in your group study classes. Um, our local library was renovated um, from the ground up a couple of years ago. And just I, I love taking the class there because they are so amazed at what a learning commons looks like in in a public space now. I mean, there's so much more to do. And when I think about when I used to visit the library, my dad used to make it a a weekly habit for us on Thursday nights to go to the library. That was what we did. Um, we would have dinner and we would go to the library for an hour, hour and a half. My dad would sit in the newspaper section and he would read his newspapers from around the world. And my brother and I would just kind of roam the the kids section. Uh, and then as I got older, because this is something we continued doing when I was a teenager, uh, we would browse through the the adult sections. And then I began doing this on my own and just going to the library every week because there was so much that I could do there. Um, and I feel like that is something that we could continue to do as teachers um, if that access is available to us is visit the public library, walk to it if it's within walking distance and just spend an hour or so there. And uh, and it's such a great experience to to explore language and reading and content and so many different passions that students might have to be able to explore. Um, and so that, that just, you know, when you were speaking there, it, it kind of gave me this flash, this vision of how do I choose my wants when it comes to reading? And there are many layers to that as well. And, and a lot of it has to do with my emotions and how I'm feeling and the kind of mood that I am in. And, and, you know, are we allowing for those different moods when it comes to language in our classroom space? That's a great story, Pat, those trips to the library. I jotted that down because I got a little section here. Like, what, what are things that we're doing that we find are working to build that reading culture, provide multiple access points, variety of different texts, styles of text, uh, type of environment to engage in the text? And the library one is, I just jotted, added to the list. I had that bring in the authors. We've been really working on bringing in those authentic voices because even if the author says it explicitly, you love to know what's going on. You love that insight. It's that personal connection. If I you want to instill a love of reading, getting to know and see and speak to authors rather than the teacher, you know, centering themselves on these are the books you should read, bringing in those authors. And I think this is one of the revolutions of the, the, new, the new style of learning is that these are far more accessible and we all have the technologies and the know-how to bring in authors. So they don't, you want local authors and you want someone from your community, but if they can't get into the building, there's a variety of access points. I talked about book tastings. These are something we've had some great success with, variety of text, give students that opportunity to dive into a moment. It's not just say, go up to the, the front of the room and get something from the book, the library, the shelf, you know, really make it part of that class culture to go through. And I, it was Eric posted one uh, recently that we hadn't used, but I thought I might try that try was the, the, the book Blind Date. And, and, and would you go yes. on another date? And I thought that's a really cute way of, you know what, I've read the book for three minutes. I had two questions. Will I come back? It was interesting. But the variety of how you can turn it into a book tasting, into just a way to sample a book and go around and make it a communal uh, group experience because everyone's going through and everyone can share their, their quick ideas. We used the book madness extensively last year mm -hmm. to way it introduced those picture books uh, that we got the idea from Bobby French. It was just, it was fantastic. And many of the books we discovered in that space, we brought to be introductions to subjects like science or math. So book tastings is a great way to just bring a vibrant reading culture. Uh, I also wrote down that this is almost like a swag bag, but this is just a list of things. Uh, the removing of product, don't make every reading moment product dependent because we can turn people off when immediately, even if you're doing a quiet reading, but they know that the last 15 minutes are devoted to doing a write-up, then you alleviate that energy focuses on what am I going to write? And now I'm reading, scouring for what I'm going to write about rather than just reading uh, for reading. And then as before, just embed across your curriculum. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a swag bag before the swag bag. Um, it is. You're right. That, I kind of was like, edit that, is, he edit doing, that. is he doing a swag bag? I'm just going to repeat it for the swag bag and it'll push our episode <laughs> up to an hour. Perfect. Um, as you were talking, it reminded me uh, of your original question you asked right at the beginning. How has sort of the content of teaching reading is a, a, a changed? And as we were speaking, I was thinking, Someone, it reminds me of a tweet I want to make, but I haven't made it yet, that sometimes I rush to, to quickly ascend to what's new and hot, and I give up things that I've, I've used in the past because mm -hmm. I just assume what's new and hot has to be better. And it, as, as I was thinking about that, made the connection here that Kylene Beers 
is always been a text I have reached back to for reminders, refreshers. It's always someone I reference. She still is relevant now as mm-hmm. she was 20 years ago. And I took my reading part one probably 18 years ago. And then obviously the special is a little bit later than that. But she still produces amazing content to build that reading culture. And, it, and, and, it, and she was still relevant then. So I think about just because something is new doesn't necessarily make it better. And just because something is old doesn't mean it's outdated. But do you think that Kyleen Beers has also herself uh, found different perspectives or found new uh, science or understood things a little bit differently over the last 15 years, 20 years? Because I... I, yeah. I I have a little bit of, um, I, th- I think that I, not it's not pushback because I definitely agree with you, but I also think that as we evolve, as we grow, we learn more about, you know, the science of reading because as we talked about that neurodiversity, that neuro sort of uh, science that we, we may not 100% mm-hmm. have understood um, 15, 20 years ago, there's more information that's being uh, researched and found out and discovered about these areas of our brain and how those connections are made. So I think that there is room for improvement. Y- yes, and I, mm-hmm. and I think that there is also value in in remembering that that content was rich then and it still can be applied today. It it can still be applied, in, but you're like you you're correct. There's those expansions. I think of the social justice work, and I, and I don't remember taking that from it. The the original time I went through the text, and I'm trying right. to remember what I remembered 20 years ago or 18 years ago, the first time I, I touched base with that text. But certainly, if I think now, you know, that social justice work, that identity work, is is rooted mm-hmm. in foundational that social emotional component. And I would argue, if I went back to that text, then lots of the strategies, how to predict uh, during post those connections, all those were there that can support yeah. identity work and social emotional that they probably were not explicitly identified as such back then. Right. I agree with you. Yeah. Been a good conversation. We're not fighting, right? No, but Ed Ralph Nader will tell you that's better if we do. So I should fight. Yeah. Okay. Push back all the time. People oh. are more curious if we're to get not getting along. <laughs> Ratings go up. So at, at minute 47, people just called their friends. Hey, you, you, you dropped that episode off too early. Get back. Get back to it. <laughs> that's right. They fight now. They fighting. Um, anything else to add, Pat? Like, I think I have, I have a few more comments that maybe I would make, but I, I don't know if they totally fit into place, but... Um, no, I don't, I, you know, there was this quote by Maya Angelou that was, uh, resonating with me and, and it came up several times as we were, as we were talking throughout this conversation, any book that helps a child to form a habit of reading, to make reading one of his needs is good for him. You know, reading as a need, um, we talked about how reading is not necessarily natural for humans, um, but in intaking information using our senses is. So reading, you know, has has it evolved to become a need of ours in order to gain knowledge? And, and you know, that term reading is a very broad term, right? Uh, it encompasses all the different ways that we can read now. Uh, but that that sort of intake of knowledge and gaining information through the reading that we are doing, it, has it become a need for us? And and I would say yes, absolutely. So how do we develop that need? How we nurture that need? Uh, that is something that you know I I think that I'm getting better at it every every day, every year that I'm in the classroom. Um, but how do I continue to build upon that and to to nourish it? in in the classroom space and I love thinking about it and I love doing it and I love to see it when it's happening and you know you talked about that that free reading time and the the teacher doesn't have to be modeling it at the same time I get so excited about free reading time because I get to pull my book out of my backpack and actually sit and get comfortable and read for 20 to 30 minutes during the day because I don't build that time in as intentionally as I would like to. It's usually the first thing to go in the evening when I have to plan lessons for the next day. I used to love to just end my day and also start my day with reading. Um, Just pick up the book from my nightstand and just, you know, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, just read for, you know, it would always start out as 30 minutes but end up being an hour, an hour and a half. 
But that is, you know, something that I absolutely love to do as well. And so when when the students get that free reading time, yeah, absolutely. I And it's not because I'm trying to model it. It's because I really want that time for myself too. And so, you know, how can I, I see it in so many students, but there are so many students that resist that. And it's not my job necessarily to tap into it and to make it happen. But if it happens, I mean, such a beautiful thing to see. Mm, well put. I'm thinking on that idea of the how potentially unnatural it is to read. Yeah, it's it's something that came up as we were as I was exploring that um, the science of reading and and what is reading to humans. Um, you know, we're we're born around the year of of you know twelve months, thirteen months. We start walking, and that is natural. That is something that we are eventually going to do. And reading is not like that, you know, reading is not something that, you know, if we were just left out to, uh, to be raised away from civilization that we would pick up, you know, and so how do we nourish and nurture something like that, um, throughout our educational careers? It makes me brainstorm and I haven't read anything about it, but I'm connecting to something Brian Carpenter said on his Fresh Air at Five, uh, citing Ken Robinson, that, that part of the how we eliminate or erode creativity is by re- removing oral storytelling and oral content by fixating on, you know, uh, reading and writing and sort of the helicopter teacher, mm-hmm. turn it into a series of checklists and we, and, and we erod- eradicate any student's chance for growth. I start to wonder, is it, the, is it possible that we start to teach reading formally too young? Mm. that we haven't let students explore enough. And I don't know enough to make that statement with any definitive assurances. But as we're talking, I'm making these connections and wondering if it's unnatural and we inherently unnatural and we force it and, and maybe for a good cause, but do we force it so early that it eradicates lots of other growth and lots of other spaces that maybe if we allowed those spaces to flourish, the ascension of reading would come at a much accelerated late rate later. That's very interesting. Um, There is also a lot of science to support the fact that students between certain ages absorb language and absorb uh, knowledge much better than at later years. So when it comes to things like learning a second language, I mean, this is something that comes very easily to students as young as four because, and and much harder when, when students become older, when children become older. Um, And so I wonder if that has something to play into that in that acquisition of knowledge and acquisition of uh, phonemes and, and, you know, putting sound letters together and, and all kinds of stuff like that. Does it, is, is that the best time to, to teach reading? And uh, do, is this actually the best route to take? And so, you know, again, like many of our conversations, I don't know if we've ascended to any sort of solutions here, but a lot more questions that I think that will really help us out as, uh, as teachers when it comes to our own classrooms and, and uh, maybe to listeners as well. And maybe we could gain some knowledge through, through the interaction with listeners as well. You get us right to where we always want to get to, Pav. The, the moment that our conversation sort of dwindles, it's not the definitive conversations and nothing we say is ever a must listen to. But it's the interaction with folks after the place that sort of solidify and cement and, and, and increase the learning. So why don't we come right back in a second and do a swag bag, which will just be a repeat, and go from there. And you're listening to... Che and Pav Show. All right, Pav, we know what time it is. Is it that time? Swag bag time on the Che and Pav Show. And we've been talking about why we want to build a reading culture over necessarily fixating on our reading program. And our swag bag, like we said before, is nothing definitive. These are just a couple of things that sort of help us understand where this conversation took us. And I think Pav and I would both agree that we want to make sure we honor, cement, and recognize the emotionality of reading. And we want it to be a positive experience, a loving experience. And we don't want to alienate anyone through how we curate reading in the space. I think the second one, Pav, is lots of options for how you want to use books 
and uh, use reading in the space. And of course, this leads to my third one, the broad definition of reading that I think we talked about, maybe not explicitly, but uh, certainly through our examples that reading is not necessarily reading a chapter book or an information text. We want to broaden our scope of what reading really is so that we do honor it. And I think lastly and quickly is just the idea to, to keep learning. There's all kinds of information out there. And although we, we ascend to building a reading culture, it's not by dismissing the science of reading or having a reading program. It's about picking out pieces, knowing what's going on in front of us, seeing what's in our space and adapting to our space because we can see when students are engaged and enjoying that reading culture, that reading in the space. And so we adapt and we are always looking to learn. And I think that is what the Chain Pav Show is always about. Reflection, conversation, and a continued commitment to growth. I think that that's a wonderful swag bag, even better than your first one, Che. So thank you for wrapping up this uh, this very broad topic, but a great conversation, I think, about uh, the culture of reading and setting up a culture of reading of reading in the classroom. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us for episode 105 of the Che and Pav Show, setting up a culture of reading. We hope to see you next time. Same time, same channel, same space. Let me go... Uh fix that leaky faucet. (laughs) Go do that. Thanks, everybody. 